tonight on Arena. Booker Prize winner Eleanor Catton on her new novel Burnham Wood and James Cosno and Reed Brennan on their new movie My Sailor, My Love. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. And we start, as usual, on a Thursday night with film reviews. Creed is back, following in the footsteps of his ancestor Rocky. The Creed franchise remains in full throttle. Number three in the series arrives this week. Adonis Creed, played by Michael Jordan. Michael B. Jordan mixes family time with time spent mentoring young up-and-coming boxers. And then arrives someone from his past. Next up, drawing on his experience of being bullied as a boy, Belgian director Lucas Dunt brings us the film Close, exploring the tensions that arise in a friendship between two young boys as their relationship is questioned by classmates following a summer they spent together with their families. And finally, sobering statistics very much to the fore uh, and the environmental impact of the global clothing industry is discussed in the documentary Fashion Reimagined. Filmmaker Becky Hunter is involved here and she focuses on UK fashion company Mother of Pearl and its chief designer, Amy Powney, as they attempt to launch an ethically driven, sustainable sub-label. Deirdre Malumby, Chris Wasser have seen all three and they're with me in studio this evening. Let's start with the the big one, Creed 3. What do we need to know about Creed's 1 and 2 um, to, 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 to know where to even uh, how to approach this film or do we need to know much Chris a little bit yeah they're boxing films that'll be a good start right. um, okay. yeah they follow in the footsteps of the Rocky saga which back in 2006 I think everyone thought had come to a dignified and quite a charming end mm. with Rocky Balboa that was the sixth film it was Sylvester Stallone in a way writing, directing, starring in again sort of making up for the crimes of sequels past and that should have been it that should have been the end of the tale but Ryan Coogler went to see it a little known indie filmmaker at the time and was inspired to look in another corner in the Rocky story which is what would have happened if Apollo Creed had a son that grew up and you know was a bit of a chip off the old block and decided to go into boxing himself so we had this story of Adonis Donnie Creed who had been a son that Apollo had had outside of his marriage to uh, Marianne and Marianne raises this young boy and he decides you know even though you know his mother doesn't want him to go down the footsteps of his father because his father famously died in the ring to become a boxer but he's a little bit scrappy he's a little bit disorganised mm. he needs a good mentor and that mentor was Rocky so for two films we had this wonderful relationship between the two we had Rocky becoming the Mickey figure remember Mickey you know trained yeah, in, Rocky in the original in the um, and the film sort of you know kind of repositioned and revitalised the story in a way that nobody expected yeah. and it was that relationship that kept us going so going into this third one Sylvester Stallone is no longer part of the of the story. Right, well, let, let me let's have Deirdre pick it up from mm-hmm. there. So, no Sylvester. No. Now we need a mentor, and we need somebody who has to be mentored. Yeah, it's weird. This is the first Creed movie, and the first kind of um, installment in the whole Rocky series where Rocky isn't mentioned at all. We don't even see a little picture of Rocky at any point in the movie, so that was slightly jarring. Um, and I personally miss Sylvester Stallone a little. He's become so synonymous with this series. Uh, but anyway, what's quite interesting here is uh, Michael B. Jordan. He's played um, Adonis Creed for all the movies so far. He plays him again here, uh, but in this case, he's not only playing the lead role but he's also directing the film Uh, this is his feature debut and I think it's a very kind of solid directorial effort he's very much kind of sticking to the formula there's not a lot of innovation but then if you're watching the third in a series are you really looking for something that's spicing it up you're probably looking for uh, the same as everything you know very generic but it's still a very kind of um, entertaining movie and everything and I mean you can see how Michael B. Jordan is very much trying to bring the Creed franchise away from its rocky origins Uh, for example when we meet Adonis Creed he's kind of taken a step back from his boxing career and he's really kind of nurturing the careers of um, upcoming stars in the field we see them all training in this very very lavish, expensive uh, gym. He's spending much more time at home with his family and we see that he lives in this very uh, nice house. They Mm. go out to uh, very kind of lavish, extravagant um, parties, him and his uh, partner Bianca, who's played by the very, very charming Tessa Thompson. So the franchise has come quite a long way away from those gringy Philadelphia origins of the first Rocky movie. uh, It's a a mate from his past that comes back to haunt him then here, Chris. It is, yes. 
so the story goes that when he was a teenager, Donnie was sneaking out at night to accompany his mate, Dame Anderson, who was a promising fighter, and Donnie would learn everything from this Dame as this in friend. short for Damien. Um, Dame as in short for Damien, yeah. But he's kind of one of those characters that isn't mentioned for the first two films, but oh, oh, all of a sudden he's now, you know, front and centre. But the story goes that they were out, they were at this boxing event, but his mate was carrying a gun, and he was a little bit of a loose cannon at the time, and they had this unfortunate physical altercation with a stranger outside a liquor store, and Dame pulled a weapon. And so Donnie got off that night, but Dame had a, a you know an 18 right. year sentence so he comes back 18 years later meets him outside the gym and he's keen to pick up where he left off yeah so that's kind of our that that's our basic setup um, you mentioned the the family life side of things mm-hmm. um, i mean obviously the boxing is the boxing is very much to the fore here, yeah. Deirdre, I'm presuming. Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, what I quite like about this film is that the scenes where, um, you know, you see um, Creed hanging out with his daughter, Mara, who's also deaf, I found those scenes like really quite hey, tender. Mila Davis-Kent. Yes, and she's exquisite in this, I have to say. Um, and the characters sign with one another. And I thought that that was a lovely addition. But yes, everybody came here uh, to watch those uh, boxing matches. And I have to say, um, where this is where Michael B. Jordan really does show his strength as a director because they are really impressively choreographed. Um, this is an absolutely essential, you know, element of what the audience came for. And they are suitably brutal. They're quite violent. You know, you can actually, like, they're quite visceral, you know, when you see those punches and there's some slow-mo, uh, very sweaty shots. And I also appreciated that when you see uh, Michael B. Jordan and uh, Jonathan Majors, who plays Damien, uh, when they are facing off in the ring mm. against one another, they actually look so much better matched to one another than uh, Florian Montenot and Michael B. Jordan in the previous in the films. Previous films. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the boxing, again, it's not the Rocky franchise, which is now the Creed franchise. Yeah. It's not as if they don't know how to shoot uh, a boxing about is it really that's true but I might have to respectfully disagree because I thought Jordan let himself down with the boxing sequences and I thought oh. the boxing sequences in the film kind of got in the way of a good time I, mean, I think most of the trills and most of the drama occurred whenever Michael B. Jordan who's a terrific actor and Jonathan Majors portraying Dame who somehow manages to outact a terrific Michael B. Jordan when they're just talking when they're reliving the traumas and, and the pain from their past that's when the sparks mm. really fly and I think the problem with the boxing sequences was that Jordan was maybe trying to outdo Coogler from the first film and if you recall so in, the, it, in those it very brutal then? it's very heavy handed and it's heavy on symbolism it's heavy on kind of cartoon visuals and it's quite light on trills and that's a problem and it's not very realistic as well and I think he was maybe trying to outdo Coogler because in that first Creed film we had this wonderful fight sequence where we see Creed fight for the first time and everything was from his perspective so the camera was following every you know swerve mm. every punch and it was just thrilling to watch with this it's a little bit too cartoonish but but I, I, I say that, but the performances are wonderful. I think uh, Jordan, uh, uh, is, you know, he really understands the character. He really knows, you know, he, he really gets into this, you know, tortured soul sort of side of things, you know, who's racked with guilt over what happened with his friend, over what happened, you know, with his mum. Uh, Tessa Thompson's brilliant. Jonathan Majors is outstanding here. And right. we've been watching him, uh, you know, Deirdre yeah. and I were talking before this about the first film that really, you know, where he really caught our attention. That was The Last Black Man in San Francisco. And he showed in that film what a wonderful character actor he could be. And he brings that into a saga where you don't think the performances are going to be the most special part about it. No, the performances are the best thing about right. this film. So okay. it has its flaws. It's a little bit sloppy. You know, it kind of, it's, it, it adheres too much to a formula that's begun to be, <coughs> get a little mm. bit rusty. But the performances save us. Stars from you, Chris? I think the magic is starting to run thin again and I think Jordan is pushing his look. I'm not sure if I would, if I would be all that enthused yeah. about a fourth installment, but it's never boring and I have my fun with it. So three stars. Three. What are you saying overall, um, Deirdre? Yeah. Are, are we, is it inevitable that we'll get Creed 4? I think it is inevitable. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, look, Creed 3 isn't as um, good as the previous two installments and where it kind of ra- ranks in like the Rocky franchise, you know, we've had some hits and some misses with yeah. that one. But like, look, when it comes to this kind of sports drama genre, you get your cheesy motivational dialogue you get some great fight scenes that old school training montage is there as well so it delivers on what you're looking for and I found it enjoyable enough uh, Jonathan Majors like Chris was saying steals the show as well so three out of five stars for me it's kind of pretty solid is solid. what you're yeah. saying about yeah. it, um, it, it to my ears at any rate that's Creed 3 getting two threes <laughs> from, from Deirdre and Chris let's move on then to our second film tonight a close Belgian film Premiered at the Cannes Film Festival last year, went on to win the prestigious Grand Prix Award. Coming of age story that depicts the unravelling of an intimate friendship between two teenage boys, Leo, Leo and Remy. 
played by Aidan Dombreen and Gustav Doal. Um, what's the nature of this relationship when when we meet the two mm. boys first? What kind of age are they, Deirdre? My understanding is they're about 13, 14 mm. years old because they are teenagers, but I, I think they seem to be just on the cusp of um, teenagehood. Um, but these two boys, they've basically spent this fun-filled summer together. Uh, they sleep over at one another's houses. They share the same bed. And to be honest, their families are just delighted to see them together. They have this beautiful, um, pure relationship and they're just absolutely so happy to be with one another. However, when they uh, start to attend high school together, the relationship starts to change drastically. There are some uh, girls in their class who's questioning why they kind of, you know, like touch each other and Mm. stuff like this. They question, are you two a, um, you know, couple in a close relationship? And Leo becomes particularly uh, defensive about this. He starts to pull away from this relationship. He hangs out with other boys. He's playing ice hockey. He's kind of using some uh, derogatory language alongside the other boys and basically leaving uh, Remy alone and all to himself. And Remy is trying to pull Leo back in because he really values that friendship and that relationship and Close basically follows what kind of comes next. So uh, I don't want you to give anything away in, in, in this score, but do we do we get a sense that there's some kind of sexual relationship or buddy sexual relationship between between the two boys uh, and and it's the way others react to that that becomes the problem. Yeah, potentially. I mean, it it, it is suggested that you know, for, for for instance, the girls in their class kind of asked them, you know, are you a couple, and why do you, why do you kind of you know touch each other like that, and and you know, there is this idea as well that they there are these lovely sequences where one of them is stressed out and can't sleep, and the other is telling them these lovely stories to get them to sleep, and they sort of behave like a young couple. Um, but I think it goes deeper than that. It goes deeper than them potentially being a couple. It goes deeper than you know this brotherhood. They are just extraordinary really you know close you know yeah. as, 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 as the title the says title, yeah. um, and the, when when Leo you know Leo is quite conscious you know, or, or quite self-conscious and when you know the bullying starts you know he kind of starts to you know lean towards uh, heteronormative activities you know he's going to play ice hockey he's going to be one of the lads whereas Ramey is just thinking to himself I don't mind that I'm not phased by that and he can't understand why his close friend is pulling away from him and I think the whole time during the first 45 minutes during the first hour I just I, I was pointing out things to myself I thought I know where this story he's going to go I think I think I know what Lucas Dante the director and co-writer here is doing and I'm not going to spoil anything I'm not going to say anything at all but he pulled the rug from under me just yeah. uh, in a staggering way and I and the next hour kind of explores just what can happen when people kind of you know push a little bit too much or when they bully kids into thinking that they have to be one way and oh it's it's it, it really it really got to me Lucas Dante I think has has been uh, very mm-hmm. public in uh, telling that this has Certainly, he had experienced bullying as a teenager himself, and that this has fed into uh, the story that he's telling here, Deirdre. Yeah, absolutely. And you really do feel for those two characters. Like, um, you know, uh, uh, Leo basically, he kind of really starts to pull away when the boys, um, you know, start to call him a gay slur. And this really adds to his insecurity. It starts with the girls' questions, but it's really when the boys start making fun Mm. of him that he's like, okay, I have to change everything here. And it's when his masculinity is challenged that he really starts to kind of, you know, pull. Masculinity is challenged by other boys. By other boys, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you can hear the boys kind of using this very feminising language as they put down one another. They say, what, are you on your period or something uh, to one another? They talk about sports stars. Uh, Leo starts playing um, ice hockey, which is a quite, I suppose, Mm. uh, one of the rougher sports um, as well as football to affirm his masculinity. And I have to just say, your heart absolutely pours out for both characters in this film because even though it is Leo who is the one who's, um, you know, pulling away and everything and he can be quite mean you really do sympathise for this situation because it really places you back into when you know you were a young person and you were growing up and you Mm. were still trying to figure out um, your own you know self-confidence and self-worth and everything when you're at that age you're so so worried about what other people think so you can really understand the hurt that these uh, two boys are going through and you see it in uh, Remy as he you know he actually like you know cries he can't like contain himself and Leo kind of communicates through these very um, subtle gestures and expressions, just how cold he's become. Oh, yeah, even as you describe it, it's, it's there's a heartbreaking quality to it. This is Don's second feature, uh, Chris, with the screenwriter uh, Angelo Tiens or Tiens, uh, back in 2018. They collaborated on yes. the feature Girl. Um, this is a, a, a collaboration that really works because there's very little dialogue despite yeah. the fact that there, it's quite a discursive, I suppose it's a theme that could be discussed quite a lot. 
a lot of it's shown to us rather than told to us. And there is an air of authenticity about the way that Remy and Leo don't talk to one another about what's happening, you know, and that's and, and, and in a way they behave like a couple in that sense that something is wrong between them but Leo's not oh. saying what it is and Remy can't understand and I loved how spare the dialogue was in this and that characters only ever speak when they need to or when they have something to say and it is quite heartbreaking in that sense and I just thought the young actor Eden Zambrian who's playing Leo is just terrific here and I was astonished to discover that Lucas Stant and his team you know they took a while making this film there is a five year gap between Girl and Close they held casting calls for amateur actors and Eden and his young co-star here Gustav De Well yes uh, they, they've, they've never been in anything before but looking at Eden's performance I mean he is in practically every frame here I think that kid has just a, a promising future yeah. ahead of him and I also think it's been nominated uh, for a best international feature film it's going up against on Colleen Kuhn and those two films could make for you know an, you know wonderful companion pieces in mm. a way and as much as I want to see on Colleen Kuhn win that award I don't think too many people would be upset if it went to this it's just an extraordinary film beautifully yeah. performed and also lovely to look at as well I think the, the, the photography in a sense when you, uh, if you look at the first half of this film when the boys are playing in the Belgian countryside everything is sun drenched and they're surrounded by this you know because the family are, yeah. fl- are, are flower farmers everything is so hopeful and the future is so bright and then the way everything just starts to fade as we go through the year it's, it comes, it's something becomes else. winter very yeah. quickly um, the, the, the two leads um, well particularly your uh, Chris picking on Eid on Dombreen mm-hmm. there. Gustav Duval, I think, does a pretty good job here as well, uh, Deirdre, for you. Yeah. Uh, outside of the two of them, is it really down to the two of them, the, the most of the film? I think most of it is, yeah, yeah. Another uh, performance that I did want to mention here is, um, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, Emily Dickin, who plays um, uh, Remy's mother. She gives an incredibly um, emotive performance, particularly when we have that kind of uh, turning point in the film, um, as Chris kind of um, gestured mm. towards earlier. And there is kind of a, it's a different movie that you're watching for the second hour of the movie, um, but just as emotional, just as cr- tragic. And and I think that Close is really about the myriad of feelings that really define life. Um, it goes into regret, shame, guilt, anger, sadness, and just how much repression um, there is when it comes to those feelings, when it comes to um, every individual that's just trying to get through yeah. it. So it's like, it's a big, it's 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 a deceptively, like, it is quite a simple story, but it's actually Build, it's actually working on these really big kind of um, emotive mm. themes which is really really All impressive right. Stars from you Deirdre on this one first I think it's just such a beautifully made pe- feature film it's so powerful it's so succinct um, the acting of the two boys is absolutely extraordinary so layered so moving um, it's a 5 out of 5 film for me Solid 5 Chris Yeah it deserves everything good that comes its way and I really do hope it finds an audience this weekend when it opens and it, and it's it's hard to talk about it too without you know yeah, kind of getting a little bit yeah, it, it, it broke me in yeah. a way but it's an extraordinary film the full right. five okay the full five from you as well although I don't agree with you that people won't be upset <laughs> if it beats Colleen Q well yeah, yeah I think yeah, everyone will be upset <laughs> okay. they won't upset too many people right let comments. us move on to our final film then uh, fashion reimagined documentary that charts the journey of the creative team in luxury fashion company Mother of Pearl as they try to transform the label into sustainable uh, a, a sustainable ethically made line the origins here Deirdre of the documentary it came about when the fashion designer Amy Piney won Vogue's Best Young Designer in 2017 and what she did with the prize money for that kind of turned some heads didn't it? Exactly so what she uh, decided to do was not just you know sit idly on this prize or kind of you know mm. um, invested on anything on herself but rather she wanted to use the funds uh, that she wanted to create a sustainable fashion collection uh, that was environmentally friendly at every single stage of production uh, from sourcing materials uh, to the very final um, product mm. so she titled this uh, collection of hers No Frills and her targets include that it has a low carbon footprint it's organic it's traceable it uses minimum water and chemicals it's socially responsible and considers animal welfare now when you think about like kind of the last maybe even just the last two or three years um, I think that people have become a lot more aware and a lot more conscious about um, the impact of the fashion industry on the environment we've always kind of been aware of it but it's really um, come to the fore really in the last in just very recent years so she really was at the forefront in many ways with her collection um, Becky Hunter is the the director here uh, Chris and there are a lot of statistics that come come away some of them very frightening and 
quite surprising, really, in terms of the impact of the clothing industry on, on the planet. That's it, yeah. I think one that caught my eye was that if the fashion industry were a country, it was ranked third for carbon emissions after China and the US. Um, so like all throughout the film, there are you know, uh, facts scattered across the mm. screen, and they, they really do hit home. Um, I think it's extraordinary that, that Hunter followed uh, uh, Amy Pownley over, over three years, that this was a three-year journey, and that at the beginning of it, you know, there, there, there's, a, uh, there's a terrific scene in there where you have a room full of buyers looking at the No Frills collection and then listening to Amy talk about it. And they look at her as though she's lost the plot. And they look at her as though, this, this you, you can't do that. How can you potentially micromanage every step of the clothes making process and ensure that at the end of it, you know, it's not going to cost a fortune for, for you know, a simple blouse for, 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 for a pair of jeans. Um, but she is determined to make it happen. Um, so don't Google what actually happened here, by the way. Just go and watch it, yeah. you know, because this was filmed a, a few years ago and in, in a different world, in a pre-pandemic world. But I think Hutner does well to craft this, uh, to conjure this uh, uh, quite an educational mm. and, and, and at the same time entertaining narrative out of things because it's a road trip I try not to worry too much about the carbon footprint but we go all around the world with Amy as she tries to kind of you know make that a success to make clothes from the field to the finished product without you know kind of uh, uh, ruining the planet yeah and you know when you describe what she's doing you think well of course everybody's going to kind of be very positive that do we hear from the buyers and those who might want to make some money out of the product that she's making uh, and might want to sell it on do we hear any of that side of the story um, not so much. No, no. I think it is really Amy Powney who's at um, the centre of this, as well as her uh, product mm. designer, Chloe Marks. And I couldn't help, you know, when I was watching this um uh, feature documentary. You know, we've seen other um, documentaries done on, you know, these big personalities of fashion. You consider like Anna Wintour or yeah. Iris Apnell and stuff like that. The only thing... The only major downside that I found to Fashion Reimagined is that I couldn't help but find Amy Powney a little bit dull. She is very nice. Um, but for me, the interview subject of a documentary really makes or breaks a film in terms of ha- in terms of how much invested I'm in it anyway. Mm. Um, and even though I think that this is a very worthy cause, it's a very important cause. And, uh, you know, as we've been discussing, it is amazing when you see those stats uh, flashed up on the screen with just how uh, damaging fashion is to the environment and really how immediately we need to, you know, make a change in our everyday life. I just found her a little bit boring. And we also follow her uh, product designer, uh, Chloe Marks. And there was kind of, I don't know, there was like a lack of life in those personalities or something. And there is one point in the documentary, it's kind of later on, I suppose, in the third act, I suppose you'd say, that Amy meets this um, other designer named Catherine Hamnett. And the thing about her is that she's very much um, Mm. into this sustainability movement as well. And she's just so much more cool and vivacious. And I couldn't help but watch her and think, wouldn't she have been a much more interesting uh, subject matter? So She didn't come up with the idea, I guess, would be the the answer to that one. Um, I I suppose... this is her directorial debut, um, Be- uh, Becky Hutner. She had won as an Emmy Award winner for yes. her editing, but I guess in the case of documentary editing and, and directing are very close to each other, more so maybe than other genres. They are, yeah, but also that award and also the, her acclaimed background in editing, you can you can see it in this film. It's mm. very well put together. I thought the parts that worked beautifully for me was when we went to Uruguay to meet with these sheep farmers to kind of, and also the, the, the interviews where you see the reactions from, from these yeah. farmers and they're thinking this can't be done. But the other side of it was, it, it it often reminded me of, you remember that, that show, How It's Made? It often reminded me of that, where we're in this factory and it would just be Becky saying, this is how we make denim. This is how we wash right. denim. And those scenes, those those sequences were quite hypnotic Man, and quite right. educational and quite okay. enjoyable. I, I, I liked it a lot. I thought it was very Stars well Stars you on this one, Chris. Yeah, I thought it was an accomplished story. Very well told. Um, yeah, and I think I might have liked Amy a bit more than Deirdre later. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go with four. Four. And um, what are you saying, Deirdre, overall? I mean, look, I still think the documentary has its moments. And when it gets into the scientific stuff, I find that stuff absolutely okay. fascinating as well as the aesthetics Uh, three out of five for me might have worked better as a TV doc All right, three out of five and that is the documentary Fashion Reimagined which along with Creed 3 and Close were the three films that Deirdre Malumbi and Chris Wasser spoke to us about this evening 
while romantic films often delve into the ups and downs of first love, My Sailor, My Love from Finnish director Klaus Harrow is the story of last love. It stars James Cosmo as Howard, a recluse widower and a retired sea captain, and Breed Brennan as Annie, who is hired by Howard's daughter as a housekeeper for him. Against the odds and the beautiful backdrop of Ackle Island, things change in this relationship as time goes on. Delighted that Breed Brennan and James Cosmo are both in studio with me this evening and I'll start with you James I mean when I see your face I think of Rent and Star in Trains <laughs> or I think of Braveheart or I think of Game of Thrones and I yeah. see you know maybe in Rent and Star we kind of saw this this sensitive side but I think of a tough man so where does Howard fit into if you like your oeuvre for you uh, well I, I think it um, uh, you're right that I've played a lot of those sort of um, uh, robust sort of characters um but when i read the script and then spoke to our director klaus harrow i was i was just taken by that character you know and i'm 75 now maybe i should be playing old ossified grumpy men that's what i've become but uh yeah i, I just i, I love the script and uh, I, I watched uh uh, a film that klaus had made a couple of years before called the fencer which was set in estonia and i was hugely impressed by that so Mm. I wanted to work with Klaus and I wanted to work with Breed when I heard that she was on board. And and yeah, yeah, he is. There is that kind of, what was the word you used? Robustness (laughs) (laughs) about him. But we do get a sense from very early on that it's actually what he's not telling us that's really important. There's a lot going on behind the bluff exterior. Oh, there's a, there's a long backstory of, of, of sadness and disengagement from, from his family, from the world, he's sort of ossified in mm. this this incredible landscape. In this, he's almost a bit like Miss Faversham, you know, in this house, which the art department, mm. I'm sure you'll agree, Breed was. It, it, it's very interesting when you're an actor and you 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 come into a come onto a set, and it sort of informs so much about the the scene, things that the audience won't pick up on. But you know, you'll look in a corner, there'll be a little a little picture somewhere of of you as a young man with all these tiny little mm. things. And it they, they did a an, a an astonishing job. Yeah, and as as James says there, Breed, uh, obviously this relationship builds between the, the house the woman who comes in to be his housekeeper, your character of Annie, and, and the house that you walk into. You can see that it's full of memories for, for the family that lived there. Annie's a different type of silent because on the exterior she just you know local woman this is a nice handy job she'd be quite happy to go up and do a bit of cooking a bit of cleaning earn a few bob on the side and she has a lovely family in yes. fact uh, all around her but there's a lot going on behind the scenes there as well there is very much and one of the things I was drawn to I love the idea of a character who's ostensibly a quiet person but they're sitting on well they're sitting on a history like all of us there's a history there and uh we learn just again quietly that part of that history wasn't so good a good a bad marriage or but we, we're not told mm. that much about it but what I also love about the character is and she is loved by her family and she loves her family she's busy but she clearly has never lost her sense of adventure or curiosity which draws her to this place and I suppose uh, she has a sense of independence or striking out for independence as well Um but certainly she, when she walks into that house and her, the curiosity has obviously got the better of her mm. and meets Howard and obviously doesn't hit it off with him uh, initially. But I always find that interesting, you know, that initially people don't hit it off and then there's so much more to be found uh, in the in the uh ongoing story. And particularly in the world of film, I mean, obviously people will know you from theatre uh, to a large extent as well, but particularly in the world of film, it, there is a real opportunity maybe to not say things, that you can show things much better than in, in theatre. Sometimes you just have to tell it because you're up there on the stage, that's you have right. to send it out. Yeah, and that's what's wonderful working with Klaus because he'll watch he'll let, and he'll let it run yeah. and he'll just observe. And and. Another wonderful thing working with James, who's so enormously generous and creative, that you find a freedom in it too. And if you're allowed to do that as an actor, there's Mm. so much to find in those silences. And I think James and I uh, both agreed that as far as 
you know, what you have to say is less. It's obviously the less is more and it's much more interesting sometimes yeah. to get rid of. And we were also uh, very uh, fortunate that, that when we went to Achel, uh, the four of us, Catherine, Walker, Breed, myself and Klaus, had uh, almost a week together um, where we would just have breakfast and then we would sit and talk about the script and not only about the script, about ourselves and and exploring the characters and the, the dynamics between them. It was that was a, a, a huge benefit, mm. I, I think, to all of us. Yeah. And that's interesting because I wondered about Catherine Walker plays the character of Grace, who is um, Howard, daughter, your, yeah. Your, yeah, James, yeah. the character that you play, James, it's, it's, she's your daughter. And. <laughs> There's a difficult relationship there. There's a difficult past there. She has her own problems at home in her own marriage. But what really struck me, Bridge, was that, in fact, I wondered about how did that, because that story, that side story is so essential to what how the relationship is building between Annie and Howard, because uh, she's way down in Dublin. They're where they are mm. <laughs> on Ackill Island. The location isn't important. That they're, yes. We know they're in a remote area, yes. essentially. I, I was wondering how those two stories interacted on the set, but James has answered it in some ways. Mm-hmm. It, it was vital to have that interaction, I would have thought. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's a big obstacle in the way of their mm. story, yeah. Howard and Annie. There's a big a problem for them that they have to get round and it changes the whole um, complexion of their relationship is dealing with this uh, daughter, Grace, who's genuinely worried for mm-hmm. her father and, you know, and is very, is under stress with the way her life is structured in her marriage and her work, which of course, as we know, is a big universal story. The story could have been set anywhere. Um, as I think mm. I said initially, it could be set in Alaska, it could be set in Finland, could be, but he fell in love with Akil and the light. And so the story is told there. But this is, these are enormous problems. We're all facing because of the, stru- the way our lives are structured and looking after parents yeah. and, you yeah. know, and That's how we right. yeah. deal with that. And um, yeah. I think this film does that really beautifully because it's not, it's not trite, it's not cliched, it really is genuinely looking and wondering about it and I think that's what gives it its complexity yeah. and its texture, it's very beautifully textured but we, we had that great week where we talked but it continued on through the film, you know, where Catherine and I would discuss those difficult scenes where, you know, she was blaming and... Yeah, because I suppose to, just to give a bit of context, because I'm, I'm, I'm wary about uh, mm. there are lovely twists and turns in the plot. But the context essentially is that she is worried about her dad. You know, he's getting older. He does need looking after for various different reasons. And she could be forgiven for thinking, oh, well, here's this local woman looking up at the big house and who could be a gold digger and who uh, all sorts mm, yes. of things and who might not know the complexity of the difficulties yes. that her father has. Oh, well, absolutely. And what she also doesn't quite realise, and I suppose this is when the parent-child relationship gets reversed, is she doesn't, she's not recognising her father's independence. Yeah. That he might want another type of life. And and I suppose Annie, in a way, the character I play, also wants some sort of independence. And you can want that independence at any stage of your life. You don't want to be pinned down. Mm. And I think then Annie is also fighting for Howard's independence as well, his right to decide how he wants to live at this stage of his life. Yeah, and and Howard becomes he comes very involved with Annie's family, yeah. Annie's daughter, and Annie's daughter's children. There's lovely, love some lovely scenes there. In fact, I want I want to play one of you. Uh-huh. you. This is you in the pub, James, as Howard, when you're telling yarns as they would oh say. yes for the yeah. children. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. So you're telling you're telling the children a story. So this is this is James Cosmo now as Howard Grimes telling the story to uh, Bridge Brown and Annie, Annie's grandchildren. That yeah. would be in the yes. in the pub. Well, it was about 250 miles southwest of the Cape of Good Hope. And we were stacked with a cargo of wild, savage animals when we were attacked by a terrible hurricane. And the skipper's daughters were all around us. Skipper's daughters? What are they? Well, that's the white foam that you get from the big rolling waves. Anyway, the crates went up in the air and then came crashing down. And before I knew it, oh, thank you, my dear. And before I knew it, there was a gorilla. Yes, a gorilla. And he's dancing a jig on the engineer's head. Well, 
I was so angry, so outraged. I strangled him like that with me bare hands. <laughs> you know, that's a true story. Oh, it's not a true that's James Cosmo as Howard Grimes in a scene from My Sailor, My Love and James and Bree Bannon with me in the studio this evening talking about this film. <laughs> you couldn't believe a word came out of that fellow's <laughs> mouth. <laughs> no, he's obviously a man that, that uh, loves... Uh, I, I, I wondered, even as I was watching that, how much you embellished the story that was even on the page. Oh, I did. I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> did, you know the term, heart. <laughs> did you know the term Skipper's Daughters before? No, I didn't. No, I, I I don't know who told me about that, but no, it's it's amazing. Yeah, is it, is it lovely, lovely, lovely yeah. little kind of? Because yeah, I thought it was all sorts of other things, yeah. but no, those the the the, fame, the 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 foam on the waves. But you get a sense there of that behind. That's a real sense of it, James. Behind the the really gruff exterior yeah. is this yeah. big gentle gentle giant. There's another scene that I wanted to ask you about later on, where the the children are up picking the apples from the orchard oh, yes. and one of them yeah. comes around the corner and, and you turn around and give her a fright. I yeah. wondered, was that was that a little game that you and the little girl had been playing all through the shoot? No. Um, when we were filming that scene in, in the orchard, we had, a, we had a, a couple of little things, but but the the scene was actually that the kids come round the corner and give me a fright. Oh, that was what it was written. As that's it. what was written and that's what the kids thought they were going to do. But I said to Howard... One, you know, like when when we try it, just give them the cue, and I'll turn around and frighten them, and it, it seemed to work. Yeah, you that know, was, it was a really genuine reaction. Yeah, you know, you, there was it's beautiful. What about the look of Akil Island? I mean, I don't know when when you're there if you can kind of indulge in that, uh, but when you see it up on the screen, it looks absolutely beautiful. It's kind of mystic quality in it, isn't there? I love that island, and I'd been there forty years ago. They put us up they were to do the Bournemouth Romance, which it was an RTE BBC mm. uh, television film, and we filmed that in a ballroom in Ballycroy. But we put us up in Ackill. We were there, I think, two or three weeks staying in a hotel on the Sound, on Ackill Sound. And on the last night, and the bus was coming to bring us all to the station the next day, I genuinely thought, I'm not getting on that bus <laughs> because I'm staying. I'm staying here. And um, I thought, I'll find something. I'll get a job in a shop. I'll find something to do, but I'm going to stay here. And then it surprised me. That, and I always wanted to go back. And this was, I was absolutely mm. thrilled when Klaus said he was going to film at Ackill and... Um, I noticed on one of the tourist boards there at the beach, at Keel Beach, about Paul Henry, who lived there for 12 years, that he had arrived with a return ticket. And when he got there for the first time, he tore up the return ticket. And I thought, well, it's a thing, yeah. obviously. Yeah. You get to Ackle and you think, I'm not leaving here. Was it your first visit, James? Yeah, it was It was extraordinary. I had a nice wee cottage that overlooked the Atlantic, you know. And after two days, you're right, it was a sort of mystic feeling. It was just so peaceful. And I could feel everything in myself slowing down and becoming more considered. It mm. was, and uh, I'd never felt that before. It was, it was beautiful. And the people were, Breed and I were just talking that um, uh, they're going to have a screening of it over in Ackland. Unfortunately, neither of us can go. Um, but they were, not only was the the location extraordinary, but the people were extraordinary as well. And there's a, a scene near the end where there's a, a big dance mm. and all these wonderful faces of our friends that are in the movie. You know, yeah. it was it was a, a true delight. They have stars of Banshees, uh, of Sharon as well. Ackle doesn't Ackle feature, uh, I think part of some of it was, yes. was shot oh, yeah. up there yes. as, as well. Yes, yeah. it is. Did, yeah. w w w no, that wouldn't have been around the same. It would have been a bit ahead of you or were you, were you shooting Exactly the, the same time. Yeah. Were you on the island at the yes. same time? Yes, yes. Brendan came round and a cup of tea with me. <laughs> What a different, what a different feel there is so. of the yeah. two films. And I, I often wonder about this. You know, sometimes when you're, when you're working on, on a comedy, it's incredibly serious. And in fact, if you're laughing on the set, that can be a bad sign. Yeah, because yeah. if you're all laughing at the jokes, it could be in jokes. What about in a, in a film like this where the emotional stakes are, are quite high? Do you get the opposite? Is, is it a very lighthearted set as a result? Or do you need to kind of hold that mood that you need for that emotional truth to breathe? That depends very much and it also depends on who you're working with. I mean, obviously it can, you know, it can be terribly sad and, you know, but you, but certainly working with James, I had a lot of laughs, I have to say. 
Um, but it's, you know, at the same time, if you're so engaged in a story like that, you stay in the story. Mm. Um, you, you, you fight for your character. You believe in your character and you fight for your character. You, you know, keep, uh, hold your character's corner to the last. But the interaction on this was great. I mean, the just the collaboration and ensemble it was just wonderful. Anyway, listen uh, to both of you. Thanks so much for, for coming into us this evening. Congrats on, a, on an absolutely lovely movie. Oh, thank does, you very much. It you. does really well. My Sailor, My Love is what Breed Brennan and James Cosmo have been speaking to me about. It opens in cinemas across Ireland from Friday the 10th of March following the Irish premiere, which is at the Dublin International Film Festival this very evening at the Lighthouse Cinema. Full details on diff.ie. We will be reviewing it on next Thursday's programme. It has been 10 years since Eleanor Catton, then 28, became the youngest writer to win the Booker Prize for her second novel, The Luminaries, a 19th century mystery set during the boom and bust of the New Zealand gold rush. Now, a decade on, she returns with a new novel, Burnham Wood, a blend of satirical and psychological eco-thriller about a young radical gardening collective and the events that ensue when they encounter an American billionaire. Set in a fictional New Zealand national park, Burnham Wood addresses many of today's hot topics, the pillaging nature of late capitalism, the perils inherent in the growing use of technology, surveillance and social media, and the growing threat also of environmental collapse. Delighted to be joined on the line from Cambridge by Eleanor Catton right now. It's been a busy 10 years for you, for sure, Eleanor. You adapted the luminaries for the BBC. Uh, you wrote the screenplay for the 2020 film version of Jane Austen's Emma, starring Anya Taylor-Joy. Ten years is a long time, however, for a novel. Was there was there a kind of a pressure after the Booker win of the luminaries on the whatever novel would follow? I, I think that there was, but I I, I actually relished that pressure. <laughs> you know, to, to be perfectly honest, I, I I knew that I wanted the book to be good, and I was. Very, very kind of, um, very grateful actually to have the privilege to not n- not have kind of financial pressures to publish right away. Um, and so, the, yeah, the first the first ideas for this book came to me in about 2016, 2017, and I would have um, plunged into the writing of it um, immediately. But as it happened, um, those two screenwriting projects you mentioned got greenlit in quite quick succession after I had started working on this so it, it, it got delayed a little bit yeah so they kind of kept you from the writing of the novel rather than anything else so the novel then you mean you said the the idea started in 26 2017 I listed off in the introduction the number of themes that are there was there one or other you know, what was that starting point what was the the spark that you wanted to write about I think it, it, it had to do with the political upheavals of 2016 around the world, you know, the the election of Donald Trump and the Brexit vote over here, of course, and this, this kind of sudden, pervasive sense of growing alarm and shame and bewilderment about the about a kind of a suddenly very imminent future. I was I was looking around at all the people, you, you know, in my in my life and then kind of at myself as well, and noticing that. There was just there was kind of a lot of blaming going on, a lot of political kind of self exculpating, um, people locating the problems of the world in, in groups that were that, that were kind of other than the groups that they belonged to, and I had this idea that I could I could write a book that would somehow dramatise this this idea that you know none of us thinks that we're the villain, we always think that somebody else is the villain, and so I could use the no, not really the structure of Macbeth, but kind of the some of the essential questions that I see as um, being raised in the play of Macbeth as a kind of formal conceit of, uh, of a novel in, in, in which many characters from different generations and different walks of life are, are coming together over these issues. And really the novel is asking the question, who, who do you think the bad guy is? Because... Um, because certainly everybody in the novel thinks that it's somebody else. Yeah, and, and I suppose that then that is one of the essential questions of Macbeth for you, is it? Who is the villain? Oh, right. Well, I think Macbeth is quite a clear, quite a clear contender for that. But I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a really interesting play to go back to in, in this kind of con- current political climate that we live in. When, when I returned to it in 2016, I went and read it again and suddenly saw that it was the story... Um, about certainty, about 
what happens when we have this conviction about the future. We're, we're so certain that something is going to happen, which, of course, in Macbeth's case, is, that is his downfall. He's, he's kind of too certain that the prophecies he receives, he knows how to interpret them, and he kind of won't um, think about them flexibly or imaginatively. He, his, his mind kind of shuts down, and that's that kind of therein lies his downfall. All right, we have you back now, Eleanor, on a, on a much better quality line. You were talking there about about this idea of certainty. The name of the group that gives the novel its name, Burnham Wood, they seem like a group of people who are very certain about what they believe. Tell us a little bit about <laughs> who they are and what they believe. Well, yes, yeah, so in, in the novel, they're a group of um, uh, Pretty much, um, you know, they, they, they kind of span the um, all, all of the views that you would probably find on the contemporary left these days. They're um, millennials, um, mostly, who are um, going around the, the South Island of New Zealand, planting um, sustainable gardens, edible gardens in neglected spaces, um, sometimes asking permission and sometimes uh, sometimes not, sometimes trespassing. And when, when the novel begins, they, they have kind of reached a bit of an impasse as an organization. Um, they've reached a place that many left-wing organizations um, come to at, where, at, at one point or another, where um, the group has to decide, do they stay true to their anti-capitalist principles, the, the, the principles on which the group was founded, and, and possibly... Um, you know, not, not not be able to continue as an organization, or do they adapt to the economy as we know it, incorporate as a business, register as a charity, um, kind of, you know, bring their operations above board, and potentially risk corrupting those, mm. those, those principles that are important to them. So, yeah. the, the novel kind of dramatizes, I, I, I think, a lot of conversations that it, it would be good if the left were having <laughs> more, more of. <laughs> I suppose Mira, uh, who is the kind of the head of this group, I suppose that she in some ways, um, she is the one that's, that's really facing the dilemma, but there are all sorts of personal dynamics and relationship dynamics across the group as well. How do you manage to give all of those people different aspects of that left-wing view without simply making them mouthpieces for that? Well, I think that things people become mouthpieces in in novels when the the novelist kind of abdicates their responsibility to make them human beings. You know, I think I think that human beings are we're all so imperfect. We all we're also inconstant. We change our minds. We 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 feel one way in a certain situation. We might feel slightly differently in another. You know, morality is so muddy and it's so. Are changeable and and kind of dependent on all sorts of other things. You know, our the the the, the things we're repressing about our our emotional lives and um, you know how how well we've slept that night and that kind of thing. So I kind of I wanted I wanted the book to engage with politics, but not in a in an arid, dry um, kind of browbeating way. I wanted to engage in it in a very emotional, lived um, kind of way. And 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 part of that involved not including any character in the book that perfectly matches up with my own political convictions i didn't i didn't want the book to to be scolding or kind of or even even kind of ed- educational in, in mm. terms of you know wa- wagging its finger at the reader I, I i just wanted it to be a lot of fun and to be able to Give, give the sense of being in the room with these people, for better and for worse. You, you said you had no doubt that Macbeth is pretty much the villain of the Shakespeare play. It strikes me that <laughs> Robert Lemoyne, your character here, the, the, the capitalist who's up to all sorts of badness, is very hard to find a nice thing about him. He's pretty villainous. Oh, oh yeah, that's true. Well, yeah, I think that there are good things about his character. You know, he was, he was a lot of fun to write. He's like... I've, I think that he's a very kind of appealing character. He's, a, he's very quick in conversation, very um, seductive. He's kind of a tempter figure in the in the book, and um, he's got a great sense of humour. You know, he's he's kind of he, he's got a certain charisma about him, and so he was he was quite fun because, of course, for obvious reasons, he kind of he's the character in the book that probably exists 
the furthest from where <laughs> where I exist in my life. And so I had to make quite a bit of an imaginative leap in order to in- inhabit him. Yeah, and for that reason, I, I, I knew that I kind of needed to give him a lot of positive attributes. He's yeah, trying to, to purchase his villainy. <laughs> he's trying to purchase this piece of land. Uh, he tells the owner of the land that he, he he's one of these so-called doomsteaders. He wants to build a big bunker for himself in case things go wrong. He's telling other. He, he's not telling him. He's not telling the owner of the land the absolute truth. He has all sorts of other plans for it. He becomes involved with Mira and her group and tells them lies uh, as well. So liars are charming, is what you're telling me. Well, I think that you know. In in any um, checklist of, of psychopathic traits, the um, the a, a kind of a fondness for deception, a, a fondness for lying, will will always will always appear on that list. Um, you know, it, it goes hand in hand with narcissism, and so I th- I think it's a it's a quality that you you tend to see um, among the world's um, very powerful, often fairly psychopathic people. <laughs> <laughs> The other thing that Des Moines has is an incredible ability with technology and an incredible ability ability with surveillance technology is he can he can pick up you know details of people's lives very quickly if he's even near their phone he can hack into it is this an anxiety of yours the nature of that particular technology it is yeah i mean i think that it's it's not just the the surveillance itself it's the it's the way that absolutely everything that we do online is monetized in some way that kind of you know you 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 go online at kind of 4 p.m in the afternoon the fact that you who you are is is you know you you are online at that time of day you are searching for this or that you are spending this time on these these websites all of that information is then packaged up and sold to advertisers down the line It, it, it has a monetary value that you never see and in in that packaging up and and kind of selling selling off of this information, we are collectively enriching these, you know, tech titans, these 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 billionaires and 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 millionaires at the very very top of, um, you know, it's kind of so far from our our, our reality as human beings. And I, I I really worry about that because I think we're handing away a lot of power all the time to people, you know, a, a very very small group of people that. Have have now become more powerful than governments. They have they they have the ability to blackmail the world basically from this kind of created power mm-hmm. that we've given them. Given that you you did uh, adapt the luminaries yourself, and everybody spoke about the time about the structure of the luminaries, how could anybody adapt that for the screen? So the novelist is cer- certainly the best person to do that. The structure of the current book, Burnham Wood, is quite complex as well. Multiple viewpoints, all of that type of thing. Have you thought about potential screenplays either there or elsewhere? Um, I I haven't really thought about it actually. To be honest, I'm I. You know, the it, I, I really enjoy writing for the screen, but it involves so many factors that are kind of beyond your control. You have to you have to learn to kind of roll the punches <laughs> a little bit as a screenwriter. And at the moment, I'm just really enjoying the fact that um, everything in Burnham Wood is, as a novel is there only because I wanted it to be there and not for any any other mm. reason. Um, but I mean, I'm, I'm I'm open to the possibility down the line. Eleanor, thanks for speaking to us today. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was really fun. Eleanor Catton there, and she was talking to us about her latest novel, Burnham Wood, which is published by Granta. Really looking forward to tomorrow night. Richie Bainham, we'll be speaking to him, basking in the glory of his BAFTA win and preparing, hopefully, for a second Oscar uh, for his special effects, this time on Avatar The Way of Water. That's tomorrow night uh, on the programme. But for this evening, Leah Murphy and Paula Shields researched. Amandine Passadevine was the broadcast coordinator. Harry Bookless was on sound and the programme was produced by Casey. Till tomorrow at seven, I I leave you in the company of John Creedon, who'll be with you after the news.